I'm really interested in working with underserved youth, especially young people that have not had access to entrepreneurial education, that have not had access to the resources from the fanciest schools. So as much as possible, we are supporting Title I schools, which have a high percentage of low-income youth and want to offer programming to those schools or to those community organizations that can reach uh, low-income underserved youth. And also uh, youth of color as well. Entrepreneurship, tech, innovation, STEM is predominantly white. I'm really interested in creating pathways for young people of color to access those industries, either as innovators and founders of startups themselves and also as employees of those companies. And especially in New York City, there is a huge huge opportunity in the tech sector. There's a lot of new jobs and growth for well-paying, stable jobs in the tech and IT sector. And there's not a lot of confidence from those companies to hire locally, especially for low-income Black people. If you ever need to appreciate the positive influence and impact parents can have on a child's worldview and sense of self, look no further than this week's guest, social entrepreneur Sebastian Martin. In the first part of this interview, Sebastian discusses being born in Washington, D.C. as a child of Chilean, Bolivian immigrant parents, growing up in the Bush era in the wake of 9-11 and forming his socio-political conscience through his expansive education and international travel experiences. At 30 minutes in, Sebastian explains the genesis of his social entrepreneurial journey and how serendipity combined with his educational curiosity led him to Shanghai, China, to forming his social impact business, Cambio Coffee and sourcing his coffee directly from farmers in Bolivia and managing the whole supply chain and sharing the profits with those farmers. Sebastian then discusses how, since returning to New York, innovating education has become his central life focus and how his new venture, Cambio Labs, is confronting inequality in education by creating pathways through STEM programs targeting children and youth from disadvantaged neighbourhoods. Sebastian describes his gamified EdTech platform, Journey, and his ambitions to scale it beyond the US. Sebastian combines an expansive vision with a deep social conscience and applies creativity with design thinking to reimagine educational opportunities. And I challenge you not to be inspired by the passion and purpose of Sebastian Martin. And thanks to Abby Lehman for the connection. Now, on with this episode. Sebastian, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's uh, great to have you here. And uh, just uh, in terms of location, where are you at the moment? I'm currently in Queens, Astoria, in New York City. Lovely. And I'm, I'm missing it after a month away from, from Brooklyn. So yeah, very envious. Though probably not of the weather that's happening there at the moment, which is getting <laughs> get a wee bit chillier. Um, so before we discuss your really fascinating uh, journey uh, that you're on in, uh, in the world of social entrepreneurship, uh, perhaps we could start by talking about your childhood and also your education. Now, from what I believe, uh, you were born in Washington, D.C., um, to parents that uh, come from South America. So maybe you could just describe their role and the impact of your mother and father um, on your sense of self and also your worldview and what you're doing today. Absolutely. Um, I'm so indebted to my family. I, I think they formed my worldview completely from a very young age and they offered me such critical experiences that uh, made me more of an international citizen from a very young age. You know, we would travel to Latin America. I was very connected to La Paz, Bolivia, where my mom was from, in Santiago, Chile. Um, I was bilingual. You know, the first language that I spoke was Spanish. And then when I went to school, I started to learn English. Um, and just, just being exposed to 
different cultures, to my family in Latin America, to understanding kind of uh, how complex uh, cultures are, but also who I am as a person and really embracing my Latinidad, like my Latinness, I think has played a big role in in my uh, future life path and wanting to work with Latin America, wanting to also uh, empower Latin people in the States, you know, politically and economically. That's a big part of what drives me today. And I think the, a lot of the values that my parents instilled in me, um, well, I, I should rewind for a second and say that, that they were very adventurous uh, people themselves. They broke a lot of barriers and, and decided to move abroad at a very young age. They were a bit rebellious, <laughs> uh, maybe didn't conform to to uh, social structures in their own countries. And um, there was always a, a hunger, a desire to explore more, um, to do something slightly different. And uh, I would say my parents were always risk takers, and that has been imbued in me from you know a very young age. My dad was a filmmaker, my mom was a project manager, also worked on films with him, but they've really had so many different types of careers and pathways and lives. And I think that's definitely something that I've picked up from them. When my dad was very young, before TVs were even in Chile, he was a, a performer. He started acting on stage and in radio plays eventually when radio became a thing. This was like in the, you know, late fifties or at least so before, and then they start to televise some of those plays and he was on TV as a young you know, teenager and kind of became a bit of a local uh, celebrity and did not perform so well in school as a consequence and <laughs> was very rebellious against some of the institutions at the Catholic school that he went to and started to get into trouble. And basically my grandma said, you're going to go live with your sister in DC and sent him away when he was in you know, a pretty young, early twenties to my mom had somewhat of a similar story in Bolivia in Abbas, and she was kind of a very popular teenager and got in a bit of trouble. I, I won't blow her up publicly about <laughs> why her parents got mad at her, but you know, she, she kind of butt convention a little bit and was sent to, to in a similar fashion to stay with her brother who was living outside of Dartmouth in, in Vermont for a long year of high school and kind of was exposed to the U S back then. And then after that, decided to go live in Paris for a while and kind of make her way, earning a living kind of as a secretary there for a while. And then eventually decided to move to DC where my parents eventually met. So I think that that kind of tradition of risk taking and maybe bucket convention a little bit and exploring definitely was imbued early into me. And, but I think ultimately there's a lot of unconditional love in our family. You know, I'm very close to my siblings, very close to my parents. We're always very supportive of each other in all of our ventures. And they're also really entrepreneurial. You know, my dad rebuilt houses and it's kind of had like a property development thing in DC for a while. He started a, a comic book that was about an illegal immigrant and made it to DC. And I remember being young and at the kitchen table, kind of all these drawings and plans for the comic book were, were being put together. Wow. Yeah. My mom also started a and and, I t and he and who's the hero of the comic book himself? <laughs> Probably inspired <laughs> somewhat, but the titular character was called Carmelo, and he was basically a Mexican guy that wanted to find a better life for himself, cross the border, and then went to D.C. and it's kind of about his misadventures in D.C. as as uh, 
an undocumented person and just trying to make it. So it definitely struck a chord with a lot of the Latin community in DC at the time. It's got a pretty popular, but it was tough. My parents had to hustle and, you know, this was before the internet when all the advertisements were mm-hmm. cut outs and put into the, you know, the, the magazines and just reading was very difficult. So, you know, my parents have had their hustles and ups and downs and I was growing up, we didn't have tons of money, but there was, so I definitely learned the value of hard work and creativity and, you know, following your passions and your dreams from them as well. So a real combination of abundance of love and scarcity economically. Yeah. Yeah. And emphasis on the love part. We, you know, mm. I think as a consequence, we, I'm not very materialistic or um, mm-hmm. really driven by purpose. And, you know, if you're asking me about what I really value or what I'm chasing in life, it, it's very kind of more intangible things like happiness and time with family and personal freedom versus stuff for sure. And what about siblings? Yeah, so we have something else I should mention is our our family, both my parents had previous marriages. So I have two mm-hmm. uh, half brothers from my dad's side and one half sister from my mom's side. And I think something that really was impressed upon me since I was very young was there's just so much love there regardless of the complications, you know, having a non-traditional nuclear family. I was very blessed to have that be relatively drama-free and really close to my older brothers. Mm-hmm. Me and my sister, you know, she's technically my half-sister, but we grew up closest in age, two years apart. And she's, uh-huh. we've always gone through all of our upbringing and adventures and learnings together. And, you know, I also have my sister's dad, who's kind of like my stepdad and like my second dad. And it's a very interesting way to, to grow up. And so my sister's half Micronesian. My two older brothers are half Nicaraguan. And then uh, my youngest brother is six years younger than me. He is technically my only full blood brother, but the happy ending is that we're all super close and still like, it's interesting. I get That's of, lovely. My older brothers are 10, 13 years older than me. So I get kind of the generation X perspective. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, exposed to a lot of heavy metal and kind of the, the zeitgeist of their times when I was very young. And, and on the flip side, my little brother, you know, could show me like Pokemon and you know other things that were in vogue when he was a kid. So it's been cool to have kind of intergenerational exposure like that. It's interesting when you talk about uh, Micronesian and the Nicaraguan, and obviously you're Bolivian, Chilean, but you're born in the U.S. What I mean, what is what is your identity? What do you sort of identify with most? With that sort of diversity of background and of with siblings as well. I would say I'm ever since I was young, I would introduce myself as I am half Chilean, half Bolivian. That was kind of my, and I grew up in DC. That was kind of the way when I studied abroad, didn't know me as not necessarily the American guy, but oh, it's that South American guy. So I I think I was identified strongly with my Latin heritage and my, you know, I identify as American. But I think I've always been a little bit of critical of the U.S. or growing up during the Bush era. It was a little bit embarrassing mm-hmm. to, abroad to say that I, <laughs> that I was American and there was a lot of stigma and stuff. So I, I've always been kind of, I think, dissent is patriotic. You know, I'm very proudly an American and really want, mm-hmm. especially now in this phase of my life, want to reform systems here, educational systems and political systems for sure. There's a lot of work mm-hmm. to be done in this country. And... I do eventually think want to run for office here someday, mm-hmm. but so, but, but I think I do identify very strongly as kind of like a, a third culture kid, you know, I've really very global, but uh, you know, I was born here and, and 
I do want to uh, build institutions here. It is funny when you talk about that. I hadn't thought about it before. You having that, those roots in South America, you must have been very aware of the collective connectivity of us culturally and, and geographically and just the impact that we are all sort of connected at a much earlier age than a lot of people growing up in the US that don't get exposed through the news or through the education to the realities of the deep social inequities that have existed across the world. Now, I think today is very different, but I'd say probably when you were growing up, maybe in the sort of the, what would have been the sort of the 90s, that that awareness maybe wasn't there amongst most young Americans. So when did you first become aware of that, the need for social justice and some form of realignment of the, to create more equity for people across the planet? Yeah, I think... My parents have a big role to play in that uh, realization as well. You know, they worked in the development space first for the World Bank. That's actually where they met. And then my mom moved on to the IMF. I have, as an adult, my perspectives about those institutions and the role that they play in, in global infrastructure and mm -hmm. development and aid. And yeah. I can be quite critical of that as well. But as far as my parents were concerned, they weren't economists. My dad was a filmmaker and eventually found his way to creating documentaries about people's stories in, in developing countries. And at the time, kind of in the 70s, all the documentaries were very dry statistical analyses of countries mm -hmm. and, you know, very macroeconomic perspectives. And my dad's approach was to embed himself into different communities and he's lived in rural areas of India and favelas in Brazil, all over Africa, and told the story of a person and through that kind of a community. So that kind of empathy about others in, in other countries and tackling these issues of social injustice and the need for development and a realignment of resources was always mm -hmm. at the dinner table. And even though maybe they didn't speak about it explicitly, I was always kind of aware of this kind of global landscape and that there are a lot of, there's a lot of poverty out there. And I think for me personally, going back to Bolivia to visit my family when I was very young, and I speak about this quite a lot. I think that's probably the, the moment I could pinpoint as, you know, as a six-year-old, seven-year-old, seeing kids on the street that were my age, you know, asking for money and kind of ragtag clothing and trying to sell trinkets for pennies. And just the shock, I was like, wow, I can't imagine you know, I'm so lucky to have my parents in this place in DC and I could be on the street, you know, in a, in a parallel mm -hmm. universe. And I can't even imagine what their lives must be like. And it was really disturbing. I was quite young. And, you know, the realization of poverty and the pain of many others was quite sharp and quite early. And then when I come back to the States, I would see it more. I'd, you know, I'd see homeless mm -hmm. people on the street. I realized that there were lots of shootings in DC, you know, we were the second largest murder rate in the country at the time. And then eventually I kind of sought out experiences that were a little bit different. You know, I tried to get a job eventually. I worked at a bagel shop and uh, a lot of my colleagues worked in, they lived in Southeast DC, you know, the more low income mm -hmm. side, the, the city's really divided between East and West. And yeah, there's low income housing and it's just totally different from what you're exposed to on the West side. And all of my friends live in Southeast and they'd take me to their neighborhoods and I kind of would, would see the other side of things and, and 
the dark side of the capitalist system that we lived in. And mm. that impacted me a lot. As a teenager, became very conscious, socially conscious, and kind of more politically active. But presumably this social conscience and awareness of the inequities uh, did affect and impacted you at school and your activities at school. I think it's fair to say that most teenagers go through a period where they're rebelling and they're vocal about the where they see injustice from uh, previous generations and trying to change the world for the better. That must have been you at some point as well. Absolutely. And I, I hold on to that little guy <laughs> and uh, <laughs> develop it in others in my the work that I do now with youth. Like I'm so uh, impressed by young people and I reminisce on like when I was a teenager and I was so passionate and I still am obviously, but like some of the greatest like ideas and works and realizations I think happen at a young age. And there are certain catalysts that can make that happen, whether that's travel or a really influential teacher or a book or something that really grabs you. And I was lucky enough to have those experiences abroad that really, you know, shaped me and unexpected serendipitous crazy things that happened like 9-11 when I was hmm. 13 years old and it was just such a chaotic day you know I remember being in our Spanish class and they rolled in this little TV and you could see the first building burning and no one really knew what was going on DC has a lot of people that are involved in politics and at the Pentagon and mm -hmm. some of my friends parents were at the Pentagon and you know they everyone thought DC was going to be hit next and there was a lot of panic and yeah, just the sense making around that whole experience was very wild and impactful. And it, what the era of American politics that that, you know, launched was definitely uh, a formative time for me. I became much more politically active. I started protesting the war. I was also very involved in kind of pro-Palestinian movements as well. Mm -hmm. And then eventually in high school, I traveled to Israel with my buddy whose mom lived at a kibbutz in, in Israel and had a whole different perspective change as well. And just, you know, went deep into that whole political discussion and conflict. Really started, you know, protesting and thinking about what role I want to play in, you know, politically and civically and how I identified politically as, as a teenager, you know, pretty safe to say I was pretty left as far as Americans spectrum goats but those influential you know I, I really cared about definitely empowering people that didn't have access to power to education to resources i wanted to create a more equitable structure and started doing a lot of research and reading books and you know, was drawn more to kind of uh leftist socialist ideologies from a young age and just it's, it was i think from a perspective really of wanting to create a more egalitarian society where poverty didn't exist and being exposed to seeing the dark side of capitalism and international poverty that that really kind of uh, compelled me to move in that direction yeah you've talked um about the impact of 9-11 and i'm sure if i had many guests talk about that but you, that generational and world-defining moment Aside from that, were there any other moments or memories from your childhood that relates to who you are, what you're doing today? Definitely a, a huge one was having the opportunity to travel to Ethiopia when I was 17 as part of a nonprofit service engagement. The nonprofit is called Learn Serve International, still wow. active today. But we were the first batch of 
students ever sent abroad with them. So it was started by a guy called Hugh Riddleberger, and he had a vision of really sending educators and students abroad to serve and to learn about different cultures and also to support change makers and nonprofits abroad. And they had this relationship with Ethiopia, a bunch of educators went in 2003. And then in 2004, they, for the first time, opened it up for high school students to apply. So they opened it up to a few schools across DC. And I applied to go to Ethiopia and was accepted. And that really was groundbreaking for me. It really crystallized my whole desire to dedicate my life to trying to uh, make change for others, to, to being a force for a development and humanitarian work, you know, moving forward. Some memories that I can recall, I think one that really stuck with me is going to an AIDS orphanage and getting to know mm-hmm. all these little kids and playing with them and then being taken to another kind of, it was run by a group of nuns and they took us to this hut and said, this is the, this is the dying room. This is when the kids, you know, realize that somebody is sick and we have to bring them over here and make them, help them come to, to terms with, with their situation mm-hmm. and, and that they're wow. soon going to die. It was just such a devastating moment. All of us embraced each other and cried. And it was so unjust to have these young people that were smiling and so happy and playing with us a moment ago and to understand that they're you know, going to be ripped away from that too soon. Definitely some realizations about the state of global healthcare and the pharmaceutical mm. industry. and. Mm. But also some really positive moments in Ethiopia, you know, folks that did not have a lot of means would take me to their homes and, you know, feed me dishes and like, delicious potatoes and, you know, really made some friends. And I stayed on in Ethiopia for a couple of weeks because my boss at the bagel shop at the time was Ethiopian from Addis Ababa. And he said, if you have to meet my buddy there. So I stayed on after the student cohort had left. I stayed on with uh, a guy called Johnny who kind of took me in to his home. He was also an entrepreneur. He had a, a car repair shop and a bar and, you know, a computer repair outfit. And it was just really interesting to see <laughs> how he operated in Addis Ababa and to get kind of a more local feel and just had an incredible time. And I was reading a lot. I was reading Malcolm X and a kind of seeing his evolution as a person and, and some of, you know, the manifestos he articulated later on in life. And I was kind of feeling my way to like, this, I tried. I wrote some statements that I found you know, later on, me grappling with how I want to uh, dedicate my life, trying to piece together some kind of statement, some kind of manifesto about wanting to make change for others. And that definitely set me in, in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. Well, I looked at your educational track record, which is impressive to say the least, but it's also eclectic. But knowing what you're doing now, there's also a logic um, to it for someone that is uh, in the working in the space you are um, but if we look at it that that trajectory starting with politics philosophy economics then into creative writing international management and then topping it off with a master's in global entrepreneurship so my question is was it a planned path or was this just life circumstances opening doors for you and taking you down a certain path along your journey given that you were quite clear of your desire to help people and have impact so maybe you could just talk us through the, the that that path 
But did also take you to some very interesting places, including Strathclyde University in Glasgow, <laughs> which is in the world's spotlight at the moment. Absolutely. So the because of my mom's job at the IMF, they don't they no longer do this, but we they would offer us seventy five percent of our tuition paid for it, as long as we studied outside of the U.S. That was the deal until you were twenty five years old. So you know this may be not the most exciting answer, but I had this incredible opportunity in front of me to get as much education under the belt as possible until I was 25. Like a real kid in the candy shop <laughs> of the educational variety. Yeah. And I, I, I did it to the extreme, you know, I was like, oh great, in the UK, I can get a degree in three years and then I can do a master's in one year abroad. Yeah. But it definitely the, I was lucky enough to have that and privileged enough to have that available to me. And then the pathway, I think, kind of maps to my interests and how they evolved over time. Like politics, philosophy, and economics made a lot of sense for me as an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. The PP, I think, is an incredible degree, you know, across disciplinary perspectives. And they do overlap and merge in really interesting ways. And in the last year of that degree, and also I, I think I should, my trajectory as a learner, I think, evolved a lot. Like when I was in high school, I think I was, I was, bright and knew how to apply myself to school to get good grades. Mm. But when in undergrad, I, I had a, a lot of fun. <laughs> I, I was making hip hop music. I was boxing. I was, you know, partying a lot. I was having time in my life. And I kind of think looking back, that was the right, right way to do it. <laughs> I was super focused on academics. And I think in my last year, I realized like, oh, this is how you get a stellar paper in. I was writing like crazy stories and you know, submitting, you know, stuff that does not have academic rigor, you know, as a teacher now, I'm like, I would not, I would not grade this highly. <laughs> but in, in the last year, I kind of, something clicked. I was like, okay, this is how you're supposed to excel at college. A little bit too late, <laughs> but then I also took a class, an entrepreneurship class, which totally put me on the trajectory of entrepreneurship. It was basically mm -hmm. the class was around writing a business plan. And I kind of accidentally wrote a plan for a social enterprise before I knew really what social entrepreneurship or enterprise was. I created uh, a company called Cambio Co. The Cambio means change in Spanish. And mm -hmm. it's been kind of the root of all of uh, my companies ever since, but it started with that class. And the, the idea was to leverage all this international travel that I'd done and the service work at that time. I'd done work in Ethiopia. I also did uh, some work in Haiti, working with the hospital there and in Bolivia. And I noticed in all these places, there was really beautiful local artisanship, handcrafts, jewelry, and it was very cheap. And I said, wow, you could sell this for a lot more money in the States or in Europe. So the basic premise of this business was to source from local artisans in these countries, sell it in these more developed markets, and then use the profits to reinvest back into social projects and nonprofits, you know, from the source countries. Mm -hmm. And I kind of ran that experiment myself and using Bolivia as a sourcing country. When I'd go visit my family there throughout college, I would find beautiful handcrafts and you know, artisanal goods, put them in my suitcase, take them back to the UK in England where I was studying. And I would sell it at uh, local farmers markets and, and my schools, international, you know, school fair that we'd have and made some money that way. And I started supporting a nonprofit in La Paz that worked with street children, offering them a home and an education. So that was really the start of my entrepreneurial journey. I, I, I kind of ran that experiment myself. 
in the broker business. So what sort of things were you selling at the farmers? My best sellers, I had sterling silver jewelry. I had recycled wristbands made out of old tires that were like really beautiful. I've had wooden handcrafts, Andean clothing, scarves, alpaca wool, alpaca. Mm-hmm. And some things didn't sell. And I learned a lot about like, okay, how to package this, how to sell a social enterprise, how to talk about uh, the social mission. And, but found an affinity among, you know, these markets for Latin American style goods and really started to embrace mm-hmm. kind of this Latin American brand a bit and Bolivian brand, which later became a whole thing for me with coffee. But that was definitely the genesis of social entrepreneurship for me. And, and then as I continued to study, I, th- I thought, okay, how could I do this? Really do this, you know, how could I scale a business and do this to maybe full time? And that interest in pursuing business for a postgraduate degree, you know, emerged in that last year. Mm-hmm. But I was always really into writing, love creative writings. Ever since I was in high school, I was kind of developing novels that I never finished and short stories and love writing. So I, you know, because I had the- But no, luxury. but no comic books. Your father's going, come on. So that, that stint in Australia and Melbourne to study creative writing was, I knew that eventually I was going to go into business. That was kind of like probably the route that would lead to me pursuing social entrepreneurship, but I really wanted to explore something more artistic, more creative. And there was, there's a parallel universe where I could have become a writer and said, you know, forget about all this and, and do that. But it, it felt a little bit, you know, frankly, a little bit too self-serving. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I've invested all of this energy and time and thinking into like how to better society and others. And I think it wouldn't be right if I just became a writer, even though I think art serves a purpose, of course, in better society, but. I mean, looking at your um, LinkedIn profile and seeing what you've done, I was thinking, you know, you could, without knowing where you ended up, with that sort of educational track record, you could have gone down the route of working, like say, as a writer or filmmaker, making documentaries around social impact. And there's plenty of people that have done that and having significant impact in the space now that there's platforms like Water Bear out there to promote stories around equity and justice. Or you could have gone into an international consultancy and working in a, a bank or a global NGO with your skills um, to create try and create impact at scale. But you took the more entrepreneurial path. So I am intrigued to why was this just a con- was this something inside you driving you in that direction or was it your own personal sort of goal setting or did you have mentors guiding you as to why you went that specific path i think to some degree it definitely happened organically and i love your theme of serendipity mark because i I do believe things happen that way you can plan all you want and especially as an entrepreneur six months a couple years down the line and it never works out Mm -hmm. the way that you plan and i i feel like just a series of exposure that I had to different global experiences, educational experiences, and eventually the interest in entrepreneurship emerged from me running these experiments in Bolivia. And then while I was in business school at Strathclyde, I kept circling back to, I started to really get into social entrepreneurship. And all of my friends, they did go on to work in investment banks and kind of mm-hmm. more stable careers and early, you know, high income making potential. And that just didn't feel uh, right for me, probably because I had that political 
social justice background. And I was like, I need to apply my skills to doing what I set out to do when, since I was, you know, a teenager and how could I leverage my business skills now to create some kind of sustainable impact. And that's where social entrepreneurship was really appealing to me. I did my time back in the day as like a, a very left-leaning kind of socialist that I thought it's been a long time since I realized, okay, that's, that conflict is over. Capitalism is one. <laughs> How can we create mm-hmm. a more humane system that is a free market economy, but actually, you know, uh, looks after its poor people and as a social mm-hmm. welfare system that, that serves society. So my thinking was kind of more in that realm. And social entrepreneurship really was appealing to me because it, it existed within the capitalist structure, but and it, and it used the methodologies and the thinking of entrepreneurship and business to create impact. And it, I, I really could see social entrepreneurship as a construct that could scale successfully with capitalism because it's still operated within, you know, that, that paradigm and as a means to make social impact in a way that could be accepted and that could scale successfully with income. So kind of in theory, social entrepreneurship was really appealing. And then personally, I think that tradition of trying to do things differently and the idea of being the master of your own destiny really appealed to me. Ever Mm -hmm. since I was very young, I loved the idea of doing something totally independent, of being the master of your own time, and to not have to conform too much to a system or to a boss. And at the time, uh, a young person thinking somewhat naively about what they can do in, in the world and, and that they can do it themselves and do it differently. But I really would encourage young people today to think that way because that's where it starts. You know, this little spark of like, you know, I, I could do that. Why not? What do I have to lose? I'm, I'm young and I don't have a lot. I, I didn't have uh, a mortgage to worry about. I wasn't in debt, luckily, through these programs that I yeah. like. I had nothing mm-hmm. to lose, so I really decided to go all in. And what really the direct catalyst was this pr- final program that I did called Global Entrepreneurship Program, and that exposed me to China. I, it was a really unique program where I got to study in France, China, and Boston, and I got to uh, spend four months at Hangzhou at Zhejiang University, just to the south of Shanghai, in 2011, wow. beginning 2011, and the market was just exploding. Then I was post-Expo, post-Olympics, and there was a lot of new business, new opportunity coming in there. And throughout my tenure at business school, I was tinkering with the idea of coffee because I, after doing some, I wrote my thesis around the coffee industry in Bolivia, and I did my research there. I got to interview a lot of farmers and exporters and realized that we have very high altitude quality specialty coffee. It's a very small industry that has a lot of potential to grow. Not a lot of people know about Bolivian coffee. Mm. And that coffee as a product generally has a lot of social impact potential you know, with over 25 million small farmers you know, all over the world, usually in rural areas in Latin America and East Africa and Southeast Asia. And they usually get exploited and screwed over by the industry. You know, they make the, the least mm. and put in the most, most amount of work and labor. And it's a very tenuous, risky way of life where you get paid once a year. And if you have uh, climate change affect your crops or fungus or frost, then you're not going to get paid for that year. And uh, a lot of families you know, suffer and most of the value add and the profits go to the people that trade the coffee, the importers, the roasters, and eventually cafes. And I, mm-hmm. I was inspired by this idea of how can we create a, a social enterprise that benefited the coffee farmers more and, and that to make this a more equitable 
supply chain. So I was tinkering with that idea a lot throughout business school. And I kind of had this personal connection to Bolivia. I'd done my research there. And the final piece, I think, was going to China and realizing, wow, this is like this huge emerging market opportunity. What about doing coffee, specialty coffee, social enterprise here? And that was the genesis of Gaimio Coffee. Uh-huh. So you imported living coffee into China? Yes, which is very difficult. Wow. It had a lot of problems. And then I can imagine, yeah, even with your masters. Um, so in what role in the value chain did you play? Not just importer, but did you then take it to the, you traded it, did you take it to the roasters or do you sell directly to retailers or cafes? I'm proud to say that we were uh, involved at, along the whole value chain besides actually farming ourselves or my, like that. But I, part of the philosophy was to practice direct trade. So traveling to the farms, really having a direct relationship with the farmers and cutting out as many middle men as possible was the philosophy. So travel to farms, we'd import the coffee. We were wholesaler initially. So we'd sell coffee to restaurants mm. and cafes and other businesses. And then the opportunity came up to open our own cafes. And we had our own cafes for a while and also sold coffee online. So a lot of different channels. Wow. I'm intrigued to go into an established sector. Presumably these farmers already had arrangements and contracts with their own buyers. How did you break their stranglehold and then bring them on board to supply you? We worked a lot with cooperatives, actually exclusively cooperatives. Mm. So these are small farmers that have to group together to have kind of the buying power, the negotiating power to be players in the market. And the truth is there weren't any exclusive contracts. And I would be really critical of a company that tried to have exclusive rights to a farmer's beans unless they can guarantee that they're going to be buying for them, you know, in, into perpetuity. It really limits a farmer's abilities to try to negotiate with other buyers. So luckily I was able to proposition, get to know a lot of farmers and as a new buyer, and they were very open to, to business. And I think that what made it different was the fact that I was trying to do this in China. They said, oh, we have a lot of mm -hmm. Americans and Canadians, and Europeans come visit our farm and try to, but we've never had someone talk to us about China. This, that sounds different. And you know, the, the impression was there's a lot of people there. And even though I was like just starting out and did not have a lot of capital either to really, mm -hmm. you know, make make a huge contract for a purchase that it would just seem so out there that a lot of them were willing to take a gamble. And from a coffee farmer's perspective, you should be open to all buyers. If anyone that can, mm -hmm. <laughs> that can, you know, assure that your crop is sold is good news for you. So it really isn't that hard of a sell to go and, and meet farmers. So from Cambio Coffee, there seems to be a slight pivot where you've moved from just doing what would be called just pure out now social uh, entrepreneurship and innovation to empowering and inspiring a generation of youth. And you've sort of alluded to it, to really believe in the power they have to affect positive societal and environmental change. What was the moment that came into focus? I think a lot of it had to do with scale and mm -hmm. taking a hard look at what I'd accomplished after almost six years in Shanghai as a coffee entrepreneur and as a social entrepreneur, how much impact I'd really made at the farm level and realizing the limitations as well of having a for-profit social enterprise that 
needed to create and make profits to be sustainable and to maximize impact. And we did a lot of cool stuff. You know, I'm very proud of the work that we did. We supported a lot of indigenous cooperatives that grew organic, sustainable, bird-friendly coffee. We made some purchases. We never scaled to the point to get enough coffee, though, to really make a huge impact. We were still a small to medium-sized business. Doing entrepreneurship in China has many challenges. I, I will, I'll spare you all of the anecdotes, but like, for example, trying to get our coffee into Shanghai was very difficult because the importer made a mistake and didn't look at the list of restricted countries, for example, and Bolivia wasn't on there. It was kind of in a gray area. So we were told while our coffee was on the way to Shanghai that it wasn't going to make it through customs. So I had to reroute it to Hong Kong, find another host, ro roaster in Hong Kong, and then airmail the coffee to Shanghai to be able to sell it. Like, <sighs> that was wow. one of the early catastrophes. Our first cafe was shut down because the government took over the whole city block. Instead, we're repossessing this to make and paying out the landlords and everyone else that's involved in you know, any kind of businesses that are here. Good luck to you. You're out. <sighs> and that happened to me like, you know, just after opening our first cafe, we had this huge opening party, a thousand oh. plus people. So things like that, like you're just like, wow, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's yeah. unfortunate. And I have to, and, and I think you develop that grit as an entrepreneur once things really hit the fan and you have to just... Mm make a move and hustle and pivot. And, and we did, we, but it was constantly like reacting to, to things going wrong. And I, I think to really be successful in China as a coffee entrepreneur, especially with the cafe sector, you need a lot of capital, mm. you need a lot of real estate connections. And yeah, two things that I bootstrapped from the ground up. Like I never had any capital when I started. I had to find angels to invest in me. And it was always kind of very organic growth. And I never scaled to the point of making enough profits to really give back enough. So I think after five and a half years, after many ups and downs, I was comfortable to be like, okay, I'm open to other possibilities and I really want to scale. I don't have to be the company that's going to change the world. And I think like my on my own, and that's never gonna happen. I, mm -hmm. I think taking on a perspective that's much more about partnership, radical partnership and cross-sectoral and how you can be a piece of a puzzle working with potentially nonprofits or businesses or governments to really create a movement of social innovation and change making that really inspired me. And mm. I did some things in Shanghai, which were really interesting. Like with, we had a rotary club that we, they, we kind of created the first rotary club that supported social entrepreneurs. And that was for our start rotary club of Shanghai. And it was more like a platform where we'd run workshops. We would have resource exchanges, have talks where we could basically empower social entrepreneurs. And through that capacity, I started to run some workshops, speaking about my experience, but also gathering experts to kind of lend their experiences. And I really liked building curriculum and learning experiences for others. And I kind of started to become fascinated by this idea of building a platform for others. And that seems a lot more sustainable than trying to do it all yourself, right? And the potential you could, you know, the, the impact could be exponentially large. Well, the force multiplier. Yeah. Taking your passion, your belief, and in others. Absolutely. And education is, yeah. that's the essence of why I love mm -hmm. education and the potential to work with youth and the whole next generation of change makers. And speaking so much about my educational past, it also, I'm probably overeducated and 
also somewhat jaded about the value of higher education because all of the things that I had to learn uh, about entrepreneurship, I had to learn the hard way, you know, by myself. I was not taught that stuff in business school. I wish they taught us some things like how to make a term sheet. We didn't even talk about mm-hmm. design thinking, about lean startup. And I went to some of the best schools, you know, in, in the world. And mm-hmm. I was constantly thinking if I were to create an educational uh, innovation program or an entrepreneurship program, I would make sure to include these things. So like in the back of my mind, I was always kind of gathering different modules and ideas and texts and books to share for the future. I think secretly I was like thinking about, you know, either creating a platform or some kind of accelerator or some kind of entrepreneurship program long-term. Mm-hmm. But my real first teaching experience was at NYU Shanghai. I did an event. We also did a lot of events through our coffee company. We had like all kinds of different community events. We met so many people with, from different walks of life, which is awesome. And we did an event and this guy, Elliot Kategno, worked at NYU Shanghai. And he said, look, you mm-hmm. have a pretty crazy story and I think you could teach. So why don't you try to teach this entrepreneurship course at NYU Shanghai over the summer? So I, I started off teaching a leadership course and an entrepreneurship course. And that was my first formal engagement as mm-hmm. a teacher, working with high school students. I recruited from all across China at NYU Shanghai. And something just, it was a week-long program, really intensive all day, but something really clicked. I loved working with young people and they came up with the coolest app to basically to project like the, the flow of subways and to reduce traffic in the Shanghai subway system. And it kind of borrowed from Waze. And it, it was this interesting app that, which they really built a prototype within a week. And we went through this sprint, you know, methodology, which was awesome. And I was super inspired by, by them. And I love teaching and they, they made me cry at the final presentation. I was like, oh, <laughs> these kids are so amazing. And like, I'm so proud of their work. And something really clicked for me as an educator. And I kept doing that for a couple of years in the summers. And really the the pivot to moving to New York and to moving with full-time education, you know, we had to close down our retail spaces for various reasons and difficulties. We were just doing wholesale uh, coffee. And I thought I could automate this and, you know, continue the business, but also open myself up to other possibilities. And I was flirting with education and my partner, as I mentioned, is a performer. And uh, we did a lot of cool theater stuff in Shanghai with the expat scene for a while, but mm-hmm. it was time to like either move to New York or LA for her career. And so we decided to New York and very serendipitously, again, one of our friends who was in Shanghai had a job at this fancy school in New York called Avenues. And my partner also taught in Shanghai and she was just looking on their website, for potential jobs for herself. And she saw a social innovation program position, but she was just perusing the website, looking for stuff for herself. And she's like, you know what, babe, like there's this thing in New York. It seems like a job that would be ideal for you. It'd be running a social entrepreneurship program for young people. And I was just like, wow, that's like perfect. And I don't have a traditional education background, but maybe they will see this other experience as valuable. And, you know, I applied and, and uh, luckily got that position and Strangely and coincidentally, all of these different life experiences kind of threaded themselves together to make me an ideal candidate to run this program and have a full-time position as a, as an educator and running this program at in New York. So to th- 2018, I moved over. That's very cool. So the coffee company is still running? No longer. I, I was here for no. six months. It ran for six months. Mm. Another unforeseen difficult 
tea happened and that the the Chinese government for where our roaster was located was going to increase the taxes for all these production businesses by like 15%. And that really hurt our margins. It no longer made it sustainable. And I, I think at that stage, I was, you know, starting a new potential pathway. I was in New York and it was going to cost me money to sustain a business. It, it, China was no longer the be all end all for me. Like I had a five-year plan of having 300 shops in a franchise when I first started there. It didn't work out that way for various reasons. And I was, you know, I was ready, you know, it's, it's, it's sad to leave your baby or to decide to shut down a business, but it was time. So six months after mm-hmm moving to New York, that tax increase happened. And my manager that was still in Shanghai was like, hey, we're hurting. So I had to shut it down. But I think it was, we talked a lot about failure and the learning that comes from failure. And, you know, if if I hadn't gone through that, I would not be where I am today. And it was so valuable to go through in such a joyous five and a half years. Like I love Shanghai. We have so much of our network, so much of our experience comes from my time in that city, but you also have to know what to pack it in and, and to move on and to pivot mm-hmm. to the next opportunity. So I was ready to get done. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Sunken cost bias. <laughs> get rid of that. And it also gives you the credibility as well with students to having sort of lived the entrepreneurial life. And as you say, failure is just one step in the, on the path of, to success. Absolutely. So perhaps you could talk about Cambio Labs and what it is and how it's working today. Sure and how you're inspiring a generation of youth to think differently about the opportunities that lie ahead of them and the challenges that need to be solved, the problems that need to be solved, which are many. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I think from what we discussed you know, today on this call, the genesis of Cambio Lab is really rooted in my belief in social innovation as uh, a tool for accelerating change and the power of, of young people to come up with incredible ideas and the desire to back them, you know, I, I think Young people should have a seat at the table politically, economically, and that youth innovation is a force that has not been tapped yet to resolve some of our mm-hmm. toughest issues, like climate change, like growing inequality, like health risks and pandemics like this. And really inspired by my experience as an educator in running, piloting a program of social innovation at Avenues while I was in New York, I got to run a few different courses, one design focus on design thinking, really leveraging young people as educational change makers and tapping them as the experts, letting them run design challenges and letting them empower other teachers and students to embrace design thinking in the classroom. That's really awesome. We also did some uh, community projects where our students worked with local nonprofits from the housing developments in NYCHA, public housing in New York City. We got to work with a lot of their leaders to a senior home and a soup kitchen, one of the largest ones in the country. We got to run projects with them where our students were running design processes that were really participatory and community driven. So not bringing your bias and your perspective onto coming up with solutions, but really empowering these communities and to come up with solutions and prototypes. So really fruitful work came out of that. But I think the program that was really uh, successful and that I'm working on scaling now is the social innovation program where uh, teenagers would have zero knowledge about entrepreneurship or social innovation and 
within the span of a year, launch their own social enterprises, their own companies. So throughout the course that I'm developing, young people identify a social environmental issue that they want to solve. They form teams and they really go through a very real world immersive entrepreneurial process of launching their companies. So they have teams, they designate roles for themselves. They develop prototypes, which can be websites or it can be hardware, but things that can really be tested in the real world and they engage with communities and real world customers to test their companies out. So they really go through kind of a lean startup methodology, you know, which I believe in a lot. Uh, they yeah. go through design thinking processes and they develop so many of these skills, which are 21st century competencies, right? Adaptability, communication skills, collaboration skills, how to be creative problem solvers and whether or not they take those companies and really launch them, you know, for real in real life, but by going through this process, they have developed these competencies which are going to make them really much more employable for a 21st century economy. So that's the whole philosophy behind Cumber Labs. What is the best way to introduce a program like this, a social innovation program to as many young people in schools as possible. And I'm really interested in working with underserved youth, especially young people that have not had access to entrepreneurial education, that have not had access to the resources from the fanciest schools. So as much as possible, we are supporting Title I schools, which have a high percentage of low-income youth and want to offer programming to those schools or to those community organizations that can reach uh, low-income and underserved youth. And also uh, youth of color as well, entrepreneurship, tech, innovation, STEM is predominantly white. I'm really interested in creating pathways for young people of color to access those industries, either as innovators and founders of startups themselves, and also as employees of those companies. And especially in New York City, there is a huge opportunity in the tech sector. There's a lot of new jobs and growth for well-paying, stable jobs in the tech and IT sector. And there's not a lot of confidence from those companies to higher locally, especially for low-income Black people. And there's not enough supply at the moment to meet the needs and the demands for whether it be project managers, developers, designers. There's, yeah. yeah. So I think, that, yeah, that's fulfilling a real need. How do you, how are you engaging the schools? Is it through the city education authority or are you going to the schools independently, indirectly? So far, it's been more direct and independent. We've been speaking to people within the DOE, especially in the CTE, which is a career and technical education schools. So these are more vocational focused schools. They really emphasize creating pathways from high school to jobs and to exposing students to real world industries as much as possible. So I think that's a perfect mm. fit, you know, for a program like ours. Truth be told, it's been hard with this second pandemic year to engage schools. So it, it's been quite a journey. I'm thankful to say that we have confirmed a pilot with a charter school in the Bronx called CompSci, CompSci High, and they have a really strong computer science and entrepreneurship focus. And we'll be running an after-school program with their students. Very interesting school. It's tuition-free and it serves one of the most low-income school districts in the city, in the Bronx. And I'm really excited to partner with them. So to, to tell you a little bit more about how we engage schools, we're going to offer the curriculum of our program. So I have fully built out, you know, curriculum with guidelines and teaching prompts for teachers. We are also creating a virtual interface, a digital platform called Journey. And this, I think this is the piece that I'm really excited about. And that's probably going to lend itself best to scaling this nationally, internationally, 
Yeah. So a, a bit about journey is that users can go on there and watch video lessons. So all the lessons that I've, I, I watched the ones that you did where you created a, the paper prototype and then you went to the colored version of it. And then you went to use that platform. Oh, those to create are early versions. <laughs> yeah, but it's great. It was a really nice little example of just showing people how easy it is to do. Cause I often talk to clients about doing paper prototypes and they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> So I think what you saw was the inception of Journey. You know, I was in the pandemic with my parents at home back in the Maryland, D.C. area. And I was thinking, you know, more creatively about, okay, if if we have to really go totally remote, how can a program like this, a social innovation program that's so dependent on teamwork, on uh, real world project-based learning, on actually meeting people Mm -hmm. and interviewing people, could this function as a totally remote course? And that was kind of the inception of the idea. And then I started to create a journey as a platform. If I were to make it all in one digital platform, you know, what would it look like? What kind of functionality should it have? So now it's at a phase that it's uh, pretty well developed. Who's built this for you? High schoolers, which I'm super excited about. <laughs> which is brilliant. It's very on, on mission and on brand. I have two coders that have joined our team. They're actually Norwegian students that approached me on LinkedIn. They said, we've been developing educational apps for a few years while we've been in high school and we saw your project and we're interested. And from the first call with these guys, you know, I realized, wow, these students are, are brilliant. You know, uh, it's a testament to the Norwegian school system, which is like super advanced. Uh, and they're super competent coders. So Daniel is our backend coder and Twitter is our front end coder. And in the span of two months, two and a half months, as we've engaged, you know, more formally, they have created a beta version of the Journey platform. It's functional now, and we're going to be piloting it with this school in the Bronx in January. So right now I'm in a happy creative phase of building all the course content. So it is based on video lessons. So all of the teaching that I do in person, I have a little studio in my guest room, which has a green screen and these little cameras and lights. I'll be recording all the lessons. It's gamified and that if, if you complete certain courses and tasks, you will get uh, different types of points and the students can't cash those in for real world rewards. So things like an hour of coaching from an, an industry professional or in-kind services or access to a competition or a grant opportunity, things that I know really benefit early stage entrepreneurs are on this kind of marketplace that we've created on our app. So I'm excited to be testing this piece of tech, you know, educational technology with students in, in January. And I think as we grow as a company, you know, Gumby Labs is a nonprofit. So any income that we make will be used to, to scale our programming for mo- more low income youth and to offer for free to more underserved youth and workers. I, I think the technology piece is what's going to enable us to scale rapidly. If we can successfully pilot these courses and introduce them to more schools and also more workforce development programs, it can really be a vehicle for delivering all kinds of curriculum. Mm-hmm. I think, I don't know if you're familiar with the program called iMentor, is a program of mentorship that takes people with experience and interests to pairs them with a mentee um, at a New York school from underprivileged communities. So either in the Bronx, in Brooklyn, or in Queens. Cool. And then you have to basically mentor them over a four-year period. And, you know, I've been doing it with this kid that was from, actually was in Manhattan, but he came from Alphabet City, so didn't have the best opportunities. But it was at the school, which is in Irvine Place, called the Academy of Software Engineering. 
and they really guide them and they push them into a STEM type education. So I think you connecting with AFSE as a school or with iMentor would be a really interesting opportunity to start to scale what you're doing awesome. and to get some students testing it. Yay. Thank you, Mario. So, so, yeah. So we're right in the midst of COP26, which is happening in Glasgow, um, where you studied, uh, rival city to Edinburgh in Scotland. I think it's fair to say, and certainly the conversations I have, I think many young people today have, to a large degree, given up hope that we can avert an impending climate catastrophe. Yet, probably 50% of the youth today also feel very empowered, driven, and dedicated to righting the wrongs of past generations, create more equitable planet, and for people as well on the planet. Um, You've obviously, with what you're doing, side with the latter, but how do you remain, having seen what you've seen and experienced, how do you remain optimistic, focused and inspired to do what you're doing? I think it can be difficult. And I've seen movements and people that have inspired me. And I think that starts Mm -hmm. with young people working so much with youth this really is such a galvanizing issue and they're all on the same page. They're like, climate change is our number one priority. We have to stop this. What's wrong with adults? Our world is, you know, dying and you're dooming us to kind of this, this very dismal fate and it is unthinkable. And to see, you know, leaders like Greta Thunberg kind of voice it so directly is it's inspiring and it, and also it, it it shakes you to your core. You're like, why? She's right. Why are we continuing the, these problematic industries and behaviors, right? But I'm also really hope it creates hope for me because I I've seen young people come up with climate innovations, you know, through our courses. I've mm-hmm. seen them become politically active, and you know, I'm part of Sunrise NYC, and I've seen the emergence of progressive leaders and climate candidates emerge and, and talk about climate change as a number one priority. I've also seen change makers on an international level and speaking about COP26, I'm a little bit disappointed, you know, Biden returned today from COP26 and the best we were able to piece together was uh, a, a very, uh, you know, weak commitment of our, of our 100 countries to reduce their methane emissions and talk about reforestry it's not enough it's obviously not enough and there's going to be a revolution uh, and not to make that seem like there's going to be a, a total chaos and blood in the streets and things of that nature but um i'm comforted by an author that i'm reading right now his name is eric holthaus and he wrote the future earth and he kind of how you spell that uh, h-o-l-t-h-a-u-s okay his kind of take is very optimistic and almost treating like this shift that's going to happen is an inevitable eventuality. It's going to happen whether it, because it has to happen, right? I I, I really believe in humanities. I believe in humanity firstly a lot. I believe in our capacity for change and for trying to create systems that if anything are going to preserve ourselves. (laughs) This is something that we have to do. And, you know, with, with, the, the generational shifts that are happening, I, I, I do believe that the number of people will outnumber those that, that are trying to hold us back from making some huge systemic mm. changes. So I'm inspired by certain texts. I'm inspired by 
innovations that are happening. And, and I think we need to focus more on our solutions because the technology to actually combat this and reduce our carbon emissions already exists. I, I think that the well, yeah, the te- the knowledge, the systems, the technology. It's just the political and the financial will to do it is is forming a barrier at the moment. That needs to be broken through. Yeah, I'm inspired by Ewan Hunter, fellow Scott. Mm -hmm. He's starting something called uh, Renew the World. He is at Mm -hmm. COP26 now and was part of the New York Times climate tent. And Mm -hmm. he has an interesting initiative of, of creating kind of a global network of knowledge hubs and to try to create a, an ecosystem where we can pilot different types of climate innovations to different countries and rapidly you know, share that knowledge and prototypes more broadly. And we had an interesting conversation around how there's so much gloom and doom around the climate change discussion and so much resentment, rightfully so, but we really have to shift our focus to actually designing solutions and systems that are going to scale the change. And I think Having a social entrepreneurship and designer mindset benefits that because you take these crazy problems and you think about how to reframe them as opportunities for innovation. And that's, you know, where a lot of our teaching, my teaching with youth starts. It's like, how can you take uh-huh. this really gnarly issue and come up with something mm-hmm. differently than what's out there? And I, I, I've been political, you know, uh, I don't know if you saw on LinkedIn, but I was campaign manager for a progressive candidate here. There were a few mm-hmm. losses in New York today. Like that was last night and, you know, in Buffalo in particular that are a little bit heartbreaking and, and the news of the COP26 is kind of like, you know, just Congress's inability to get our shit together. Those things are definitely like disappointing, but I, I do see this emerging movement of young leaders, of millennial leaders that really care about the climate issue and we have to do whatever we can to support them. And, and I think ultimately there's a bit of naivete maybe on my part and mm-hmm. that undying optimism as an entrepreneur and as a change maker like no matter how difficult the situation seems we have to continue trying and believing that it, it is possible and it is possible you know and it'd be very hard but it is totally viable to reduce our emissions within this decade to a level that's manageable if we can make the changes I mean, I think you're, I mean, look, you're right. I've had seen so many conversations on LinkedIn from friends that are um, talking about their cynicism about the impact of COP26. But even if the politics isn't moving at the pace it needs to, businesses and investment will, because it's quite clear from whether it be large pension funds or VCs, ESG investing, and let's say triple bottom line is increasingly important. So... Given that we're starting to see a sort of a, a more of a rapid shift coming from business, yes. how do you take what you're doing and align with people like VCs and incubators that are focused on ESG to try and connect these this youth, this generation of youth that you're going to be inspiring with ideas to then be part of that startup scene? How do you bridge that gap over the next few years? Because it's not going to, you're in the early stages at the moment, but that's where you probably have to be. Definitely. I think you nailed it in terms of bridging the gap and really forming partnerships and holding businesses accountable in a way that they haven't been in the past. There's a lot of resentment for businesses. You know, they've been allowed to pollute and destroy our our world and and, and totally unchecked. But 
as you said, there is a huge shift now. There's commitment because this situation is getting so dire. So putting aside the actually moving forward as partners and engaging businesses that want to uh, really put their money where their mouth is in terms of dedicating their staff, their resources, their in-kind services to this movement. So what, what I'm proposing right now actually is I have a proposal that's out and, and pending funding, which I really hope comes through. But I've created a climate-focused accelerator program for NYCHA, so public housing in New York City, to target underemployed and unemployed young adults age 18 to 26 that will go through a course that's uh, all about developing climate solutions, which has a lot of intersection with, with housing. You know, 80% of our emissions in New York City are caused by buildings and by housing. NYCHA is tremendously underfunded and has been allowed to go into a state of disrepair for many years after, you know, being underinvested by the federal government. And there's a lot of movement now to greenify NYCHA and to enable underemployed people to have jobs in a climate economy. What's NYCHA? Uh, NYCHA is uh, New York City's housing authority. Oh, I see. So okay. it's affordable, low-income housing. You know, you might have heard of it, the uh, projects, some people yeah. call it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, I think with people like, you know, Eric Botcher? Yes, I'm actually pitching to him for Chelsea. Mm -hmm. to oh, well, say hello to him because I interviewed him for another. So this, I did another project during the summer before leaving New York called Back the Neighborhood, looking at how do you re-knit the fabric of neighborhoods. Cool. And it was look, taking design thinking to look at through a series, starting with a series of interviews of restaurants, retailers, and residents to understand the systemic problems and then going, okay, what do we have to do either through sort of technology and behavior change to sort of change the dynamic and build community again? And I interviewed Eric Botcher for it. That's amazing. He's a great That's guy. Cool. Yeah. So he's really, he's, re he's really committed to that whole area. His district. So just to come back full circle, like we're working with two national developments in that neighborhood, in the Chelsea neighborhood. There's Fulton Houses on 16th Street, right next to Google. And then there is Elliott Houses on, uh, on 10th Ave as well. That's Eric Botcher's district. So the proposal is to launch these green and solar programs at the two national developments and to let it be a pilot that could potentially scale you know, across the city and then eventually internationally. And the goal will also be to align businesses and especially clean energy or green sustainable businesses and to really enlist those folks to either be employers and to offer some of the technical know-how to go along with our kind of innovation course. You know, I'm very, I, I love reading about climate uh, innovation, but I'm not an expert in, in that realm by any way. So part of the, uh, the strategy would be to partner with those people to kind of build a robust course that can teach them innovation skills, but also really equip them for uh, green new jobs. So I'm conscious of time. So I'm going to get to the sort of last few questions, okay? So, sure. Um, where do you want to be when we hit 2030? I want to have Gambio Labs in a state of creating national and international impact. I really mm -hmm. want to build out the tech so that it's at a point where it's a standalone platform where any user could access social innovation programming either for free or for a very low cost and partnering in a way where we are delivering all kinds of impactful curriculum, you know, through our technology. So I really want Cambio Labs to be self-sustainable, scaled, 
beyond the point that I could, like, I really want our organization to grow in a tremendous way. I think I'm also personally interested in becoming some kind of a representative uh, running for public office. I'm interested eventually in, in having some kind of congressional seat and fighting for the rights of working class people and for access to education and livelihoods and livable wages for everybody. And I definitely will be a climate focused candidate as well. <laughs> so I, I think that's, I have kind of like this plan, you know, frequently 15 years and somewhere along the way, there's definitely uh, a pathway to, to politics. Okay. Well, it sounds like you're building a very interesting and impressive and interesting legacy. <laughs> so anything we can do to help along the way will be good. Just for the quick questions, I'm intrigued. Uh, I mean, you've talked about failure and gone down a path, refer to using the Robert Frost term, the road less traveled. You've obviously had to confront fear along the way. How do you do that? How do you manage it? I think having a sounding board and a support mm -hmm. network that will also call you on your bullshit at times and make you more <laughs> self-aware. And for me, my, my life partner and my fiance is one of those people that most frequently calls me my bullshit <laughs> and, and makes me recognize problematic patterns, you know, issues with ego and the conflict of wanting to serve others but sometimes prioritizing self too much. They're being project obsessed and not being mindful enough of relationships and the values that, you know, really I care about. So I, I think being able to look in the mirror frequently and say like, am I holding true to my principles or could I be doing this differently? And what kind of behaviors do I have to change to, to really succeed? That's probably the scariest thing to confront itself. I am very confident in that, like, I've been through so many mishaps and adversity that you always find ways through. There's always going to be some kind of pivot available to you. So I'm not so fearful about things going wrong. I'm most fearful about not holding true to, to myself and how that might impact my organization and mm -hmm. my world and the people that I love. So, okay. yeah, I believe in therapy. That's, that's good answer. <laughs> I, I'm not, I, I don't go, I don't personally go to therapy, but I, I believe in it a lot and support a lot of people that, that do that. And, and just for some people, that's the vehicle to reflect for self-reflection. People that'll call you out and help hold you accountable, mm -hmm. I think is it. Okay, quick four questions. Uh, what principles do you stand by? Social impact above all else. You know, I really, if ever I am in a situation that there are alternatives available and it's a hard choice, I think whatever is gonna have the best net positive output for society and for others. I really believe in empathy a lot. Mm -hmm. And to the point of trying to view strangers and people in the world as kindred and really mm -hmm. committing to this vision of people as a, as a common human family where you're going to fight for their rights even if you don't know them and, and you're going to sacrifice for the sake of somebody that you don't know. I really believe in that philosophy, which has been espoused by leaders that I love, like, you know, Bernie Sanders. And, you know, it's not about uh, me, it's us. I try to hold myself accountable, like, true to that. And I try to see people, the best in people, even when it's really difficult. And I think not getting too lost in the sauce of your own projects and your own bullshit is, is mm -hmm. one as well. Being mindful of, 
of reality and the moment and the people that you love is often very difficult. And mindfulness is something that I struggle with, but a, a principle that I try to uphold. What hard choices have you had to make that may have been tough at the time, but uh, in retrospect, where are the right decisions? Hmm. Closing down Gambia Coffee, for sure hurt me a lot just generally moving away from the rat race that could have gone on for a very long time in shanghai and knowing when to pull out of entrepreneurship i think is really difficult because you're so invested in it that was mm -hmm. very tough one i think choosing to leave a career path that is stable and it has uh some benefits like the the job at avenues or maybe choosing not to go down a more traditional career path and choosing a, uh, a life that's way more unpredictable and chaotic is tough. Although I would say not that tough because I, I love this space and I thrive here, mm -hmm. but it is hard, you know, when you have a month to make ends meet and you have to, yeah. you know, earn rent for your family and mm -hmm. pay your staff and you don't really know how sticking true to your, your principles and sticking it through is, is tough. There are, there are easier pathways and uh, the road less traveled is, is a tough path to travel sometimes that's good that's, that's good good answer where do you go to discover new ideas intelligent people and a network that constantly is feeding me that i'm very grateful for i go to art for sure i love music and theater and movies and i'm often inspired by that i go on runs and i box so definitely the cardio for me is meditative and that mm -hmm. kinetic motion kind of sparks something often. I get ideas and dreams sometimes, and I wake up and I write things down, and that's that's pretty uh, cool. That's okay, yeah. you've probably um, answered this along the way, but what is the one problem worth, worth solving? I'm not sure how to articulate this, but the our inability to tap people's full potential whether that happens in the school system or in the workforce or in people's personal lives, I see so many folks get limited by either their self-limiting beliefs or the world or mm -hmm. social structures that have oppressed them for generations. And I really want to create some kind of uh, vehicle for to really actualize themselves. And I think if we were to figure that out, we would be a much more prosperous and happy society. That's that's naturally just. Okay. Who or what has made you reevaluate yourself? You've probably heard this a million times with the pandemic. 100% has forced me to reevaluate my life path, my career, my objectives, and really envisioning what kind of future I want for myself. So much of that. You're the first person that said the pandemic. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like it's affected so many people. And my poesta, my fiance, she constantly forced me to reevaluate and improve myself and in all the right ways. And I'm, I'm very grateful. Cool. And impossible question. What advice would you give to someone that's about to graduate, study, get a job that's got an amazing, grand, bold, audacious ambition, but has been told, forget it. You'll never do it. That's impossible. To bug convention and to hold on to 
themselves and to never let go of that passionate, idealistic, youthful energy that they have. And that change can happen in many forms within systems and outside of systems. And to go for it, to take those risks, because if not now, when? And it, it is vitally important for the future of all of us to take those risks and, mm-hmm. and stay true to, to their beliefs. Good. Very good answer. Fun question. When you and your partner go out and uh, decide to hit a karaoke bar, what's your go-to karaoke <laughs> song? We used to have a cover band. And not me and my partner, we had a cover band. Uh, well, in college, <laughs> I'm a terrible singer, but somehow I became like the frontman of this band. Mm-hmm. And I would do our song to start off with was "I Want a Beard Dog" by the Stooges. Okay, <laughs> I'll add it to the list. <laughs> During the pandemic, um, we all watched many documentaries, films, series. <laughs> anything you think that someone should watch that they might have missed? I liked Oliver Stone's History of the United States. That was pretty cool. It's very good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gave me something we didn't know about and a perspective that I, I think many folks could benefit from. Mm-hmm. No. I saw that. It is very good. What book we offer our listeners and come up with good comments on Instagram or on the website? What book would you like us to offer them? I'd like to do something more fun, but like I, <laughs> I keep getting onto this set. Kind of couple. One that I love, Naomi Klein's On Fire. Huh? Really not read collection of essays throughout the years. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's definitely climate focused, but it had glimmers of hope and strategies and different disciplines kind of weighing in on, on this issue. And I, it was really cool. Okay. And our final question, who should we interview next? Would it be okay if I had to think about this and... Of course, absolutely. I'll, give, I'll yeah. give you a LinkedIn profile with like very soon, but I, I, I want to yeah, give you. I want to give you a proper like on oh, no, proper thing. If that's all right. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. Yeah, sometimes we've we've had a situation where it's taken six months. Sometimes <laughs> <laughs> you're like, come on, hurry you up. Can count on me, Marco. Um, yeah, this has been really cool. I like. I like. That's good. Conversation. Well, thanks very much. Well, I just sort of wrap up and thank you for your time, uh, Sebastian, and uh, acknowledge you for your. I mean, as a as an entrepreneur yourself, I mean, you've shown unrelenting courage, and um, you're really humble about what you've done as well, which is inspiring, and also just what comes across as a selflessness and a social conscience that is admirable. So yeah, keep up the amazing work and really look forward to seeing what happens. And as I say, if there's any of our previous guests, we can connect you to other than I mentioned Beth. Um, You you always try and connect our guests because we believe in the power of the network. That's a gift, Mark. Cool. And yeah, I thought to myself as I read through website, like someone needs to do this for Mark. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you've got it. Just your profile too. crazy story to tell i think yeah. people would be very interested so I, I don't know i challenge you to to be interviewed by somebody maybe someday because i think we'd like to hear that story yeah i did it i got cool. interviewed by um cool. guys they run a, a a podcast called the furious curious oh cool so they did a little interview with me and then i had a, a client actually one of the first people i started interviewing was a client called uh, dr courtney renicky and she is a psychotherapist in uh, tribeca and she and one of her partners is doing a lot of work in the whole 
a diversity space with in psychotherapy. They both have their own businesses, but they wanted to do a podcast called Shrinks Drinking Whiskey. <laughs> so the plan was two, two female shrinks, one who's a gay black woman, the other straight white woman, <laughs> both shrinks, both love whiskey. And I was her first guest. And they got me absolutely hammered. And for two hours, I basically, through therapists, you can imagine the questions oh, they asked you. And they've never done anything with it, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, I yeah. found, I think, your podcast on Furious Curious online, so I will check it out. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right, well, enjoy. And uh, thank you, Sebastian. And I'll um, try and get this live for next week. Wow, okay. okay. Thank you. Cool. All Bye. right, okay, thanks Loaded a lot. Did. Bye-bye. Okay, that's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please either follow, download, or subscribe on your preferred podcast player. We'd also appreciate a rating and a review as it helps more people find us. And if you have a guest you think we should interview, just email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com or message us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. This is a Fabrica Collective production. So have a great week and we'll be back next time with another inspiring guest on The Impossible Network.